That's what I'm talking about. Wait. Okay, now, from the beginning. Welcome to BS Beyond Stereotypes, a podcast about lawyers using their authentic voices to change the world. I think I've just always been keenly aware that whether conscious or unconscious, race matters, you know, and my goal is to always make sure that I am finding a way to keep the door open more than it was when I came through it and also honor those who helped me in some way. And so I'm always super cognizant of my reactions and my behaviors with that in mind. Welcome to BS, Beyond Stereotypes. I'm your host, Merle Vaughn. Here to BS with me today is Rakia Pippins, whose story I found fascinating and who will no doubt inspire all of you to embrace your authenticity. Hey, Rakia, how you doing? I'm doing well, although I'm so flattered you would even describe me in that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's true. It's true. I've known you about six years and mm-hmm. you're, uh, you're, I, I keep, I follow your career for for reasons that are personal, and uh, I'm so proud of you. Um, and let me tell our audience a little bit about you. Um, Rakia is an FDA consumer health and consumer product advertising partner at Arnold and Porter in DC. She graduated from Stanford University undergrad and attended UVA's law school. She's, I'm not going to like go into a lot of accolades because we only have so much time, but she received, um, she was a, uh, in 2015, uh, 40 under 40, um, in, uh, also in 2015, Ebony, how is that? In, in 2015, Ebony's 30 under 30. Um, and, uh, in 2019, uh, was recognized in chambers as uh, a recognized practitioner in advertising and marketing. Did I leave anything out, Rakia? Or, you or mess anything said up? Way more I would have than what I would have put in my own bio. <laughs> so I think we're good. <laughs> okay, good, good. So um, let's start from the beginning. Um, Give us an idea about, so we, we know who you are professionally, at least, you know, uh, on the surface, and we'll get back to that, but tell us who you are personally. Where are you from? What was your, your upbringing like? Oh, wow. So it's funny. I always say I'm from Hampton, Virginia, although I was born in White Plains, New York, and that's why I root for all the New York sports teams, except for a couple (laughs) I put on timeout for a little bit, but that's a whole other story for another podcast. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, I went to high school in Hampton, so that's why I claim it, because I can tell you how to get around down there. And I think I'm a part of that generation that just was impacted by seeing a different world, so I knew I wanted to go to an HBCU. And I went to Howard University for two years and Stanford for two years. So while ah. I graduated from Stanford, I always say I'm a third bison, a third cardinal, and a third wahoo for UVA. I have like equal love for all three institutions. Got it. Um, I will say as part of that, I think that's a part of like how I approach people because I'm so used to being in different environments and realize that at the end of the day, there's usually more that people have in common than apart. 
Um, I will also say my time in California let me know I was an East Coast person. So <laughs> it was very easy for me to come back here. No, no, no shade, Meryl. I know you decided to make it. <laughs> Yeah, you know, some people are just not cut out for paradise. You know, hey, I'm not. Oh, hey, <laughs> I'm not going. But you know, I like a little change here and there. I like to get dressed up sometimes. I can't wear flip flops year round, you know. So <laughs> um, but yeah, I would say that I am someone who is a prime example of God just ordering your steps and opening and closing the doors that He wants you to to get you where you're supposed to be. I never would have thought. That I would be sitting here as a partner at a law firm. It's just I'm humbled by all of the things that have happened and even the people I've met, including you, Meryl, which came from my profile, Tasha, like who knew pledging right. Delta at Stanford would lead to that. So um, it's definitely been quite a ride. Right. So yeah, while we're at it, let's give a shout out to Tasha Brown, our girl, Tasha Brown. Tasha mm-hmm. and I were uh, colleagues at Major Lindsay in Africa. Um, uh, when you and I met, she she introduced me to you, um, and uh, she has moved on and she's doing great things. Um, you know, she has a daughter who is uh, an amazing ballerina and is yes. dancing, and uh, I think she's 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 moved to the Sun Belt. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yeah, uh, shout out to Tasha, and we will definitely um, tag her. And give her her give her her props when when this drops. Yeah, no, I love Tasha to death. So, um, so you are from New York, Hampton. Um, what what uh, drove? Why did you decide to go to Stanford? It, because there are plenty of schools, you know, on the uh, East Coast, you know, especially Northeast, that you could have gone to instead. You know, it's funny, typical sibling rivalry, although I would say I never had like a negative relationship with my brother. I have always kind of idolized him a little bit. He's eight years older than me, but he went to Harvard and I viewed Stanford as the opposite of like trying something a little bit different. Mm -hmm. So when I went to Howard, I already had intended to spend a year doing an exchange program to Stanford. I had like that planned out that I would go to an HBCU and just visit a PWI for some time. And what ended up happening was that while I was at Howard preparing to do the exchange, my mom kind of came to me and said, you know, Rakia, you're someone who loves to be a leader in organizations and to kind of drive change. And if you go to Stanford for a year and come back to Howard, you're going to have missed out on an opportunity to run for office for things and do play the role in organizations that you typically want to play. And I really hadn't thought about it that way. And so at some level, she was like, you know, if you transfer, you kind of get the best of both worlds. I had already built some really wonderful friendships and relationships at Howard. I pledged an honor fraternity there. I'm still very close with my brothers from that. And um, my best friend was my roommate at Howard and kind of, you know, find a way to stay connected with both. And so that's how I ended up at Stanford. But it was definitely initially supposed to be a year when I was in high school. (laughs) And, you know, one conversation turned that into a transfers that and God, because I honestly hadn't even thought not because I'm cocky, I just hadn't processed it. It's not necessarily easy to transfer schools, but he, right. he facilitated that. And so talk to me about your parents. I mean, because it sounds like unlike a, a lot of folks, I mean, we haven't mentioned it. You're you you identify as African American, correct? Oh, absolutely. I'm black. Yeah, black. <laughs> but me too, girl. I'm black all day. Unapologetically. Yes. Um, 
Uh, and so a lot of folks like us don't always have parents who can give that kind of advice uh, or who have the experience um, uh, or exposure to do that. So it sounds like it, your mom and I know probably your father as well were very instrumental in helping to, to direct you as well. Yeah, I was very, very blessed with parents who were quote unquote educated, but were also completely opposed to anything that created divisions from people based on their education, if that makes sense. So um, my parents are from the Midwest. Uh, My mom is from East Chicago, Indiana. My dad's from Alton, Illinois. And they actually met at the University of Illinois Urbana. But my mom transferred there. And so I think that's what had her always aware of the ability to change schools because she had started at a smaller school in Indiana before she had gone to the University of Illinois. Um, I, yeah, I don't even know how to begin talking about my parents. They are just two of the most amazing people I have ever met. And I think just did a wonderful job of ensuring that my brother, sister, and I benefited from some of the privileges and access that they were able to obtain while still staying connected, you know? And so we always still visited with all of our family. <laughs> we always still um, made sure that we went to camps and churches and things of people of a variety of socioeconomic backgrounds. And I think mm-hmm. that's why even in like going to Howard or being in Hampton and stuff, my mom could talk about some of the benefits of Stanford without viewing it as like a better option or not, it's just a different option for balance. And, and yeah, and so that's awesome. So you have to you have to give props to your parents. You have, mm-hmm. you always have to do that. Um, so I also noticed, and now it, it starts to make sense that you do a lot of most of your volunteer uh, board service and such is for organizations that benefits children. Correct? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think it's for, because I always understood, and I would say this comes from my mom, the importance of access. So my mom was the president of a community college or a few of them actually. And so I think the whole concept of knowing that um, not everyone has the same resources when they're growing up and therefore aren't able to take advantage of some of the opportunities and benefits that my siblings and I, for example, were makes me really conscious of finding ways to create more equity or at least some more opportunity for Um, lower income or less resourced Black children in particular than would otherwise be available. And so I always am seeking out ways to do that, Um, just hoping that I can somehow make the world better than it was when I was brought here. I feel like it's also part of my Christian obligation of just being service-oriented and spreading his love and his blessings to others. Awesome. Okay. And so let's, you know, we're here to BS about stereotypes a little Mm -hmm. bit. And I think, you know, where I would start with you is with your name. So, you know, Rakia, you know, I'm sure you're aware that a lot of times, you know, there have been studies that have done, you have been done about, uh, about interviewing and uh, resumes and how sometimes, you know, just having a, a different name um, can negatively affect you. I'm wondering, one, what does Rakia mean and where did that come from? But two, have you uh, battled any stereotypes based on your name? It's a great question. So my name is Arabic. It means high visions. Um, My parents read it in a book, Um, but it's interesting to me that most people who see my name, especially 
if they are from Africa or the Middle East or Muslim, assume that I'm Muslim or mm-hmm. of Arab descent. And mm-hmm. I also think that in some ways, I don't know if my name has negatively impacted me in interviews. I think the fact that there's no you after my cue, honestly, <laughs> causes people to, I'm being dead real. They react. It messes with me. Let me tell you, every time I I'll, type I'll, it, you, I, but it messes it, I me I also up. will say that it messes with a lot of people, including my grade school <laughs> teachers, but we'll come back to that. But I think I didn't experience the same type of prejudice um, and racism, frankly, that I would have if my name was spelled R-A-K-I-A or O-C-K-I-A. I think that it was enough to let people know I was diverse, mm-hmm. but not be 100% sure before we I entered the room of what my ethnicity was. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Have So have you, do you feel like you've... Uh... Uh, had to transcend, in, you know, any stereotypes, um, or or, uh, and and if so, what were they, or at least an example, if you can think of any. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's interesting. I think that growing up in Hampton, Virginia, which is a very segregated community, mm-hmm. in some ways, has taught me how to engage with environments where the people in power are often not black or are white. And I think that um, for better or worse, I think there have been instances where I think there's a presumption that I'm going to react a particular way when something doesn't go my way or when I, when something goes on, that could be a trigger that um, you might become the stereotypical angry Black woman or do certain other things that has caused me to always view that as playing checkers and not chess, To be, if I'm being frank, <laughs> and choosing my words appropriately, finding ways to find that collective ground I think I mentioned earlier about um, being in different environments and seeing how that worked and finding ways to empower and support my people while um, but also being mindful that how I react in a particular way could limit my ability to do so in the future. I think I've just always been keenly aware that whether conscious or unconscious, race matters, you know, mm-hmm. and my goal is to always make sure that I am finding a way to keep the door open more than it was when I came through it and also honor those who helped me in some way. And so I'm always super cognizant of my reactions and my behaviors with that in mind. Um, to not lead to a door closing, if that makes sense, yeah. while also making sure I advocate. So you're you're good at, it sounds like you're good at, uh, I, I hate to call it playing the game, but uh, <laughs> you're, you're, you, you figure it out a way to, to walk the line. I'm trying. I mean, it, it has not always been successful. <laughs> there have been instances where, you know, people respond to you differently and I mean, without getting into too much detail, I've had my share of experiences where I have perceived you can't get in other people's minds, but Mm -hmm. that maybe people were more comfortable with me when I was playing a pure supportive role than when I got to a position where there might need to be a change in how um, I was in the business structure or in the relationship. And I think I, I, while I know how to, or I try to play the game, I'm also, I also believe in justice, if Uh that makes sense. And so I won't let things slide. (laughs) And there are consequences to that. But um, I think I have learned how to appropriate to approach things from a business perspective, 
you know, and thinking about that as opposed to, and not business meaning that the justice and stuff doesn't matter, but meaning while I'm trying to achieve a justice related goal, remembering that the mindset of others may be more business oriented and trying to take that into consideration. Right. I get it. And so speaking of business, you, how did you end up in this practice area, FDA, consumer health, consumer? I mean, did you have an undergraduate degree that related to that or how did that happen? No, I would. And I know I feel like I talk about God all the time, but it's so true. It is totally him. I didn't even know that this practice area existed when I was in law school, let alone when I walked into the halls of Covington and Burling as a first year associate. Um, I literally had a series of circumstances happen where people presented projects in front of me. Starting off with there, there was an attorney that I um, had gotten to know. I guess her office actually was down the hallway from me, who was a food and drug attorney, even though I was a general litigation associate. Mm -hmm. And she knew that my father was in marketing. And so she just mentioned to me a project that she had, a smaller project that dealt with some marketing-related issues impacting a FDA-regulated product. And it kind of opened me up to this idea that there were rules about what people could say <laughs> to, yeah. to consumers about stuff, you know, and that, you know, I always remembered my dad saying, we hate the lawyers. They always say no, you know? And so I was <laughs> like, okay, how can I not say no, but help them not get sued? But it was so eye-opening. And then I ultimately followed that attorney to my prior firm. And um, from there, started off doing one form of advertising law. And then another attorney went on maternity leave that gave me the opportunity to work on more of a consumer health drug product mm -hmm. project. And that changed my life. I ended up working with a client. Um, and I still, every day, I will always thank Bad Whitfield. I feel like he was a huge advocate of mine, supporter of mine. It was a general Say counsel. His name again. Say his name Bad again. Bad Whitfield. Bad Whitfield. Okay. Um, and to show that your allies and supporters are not always going to be black. He's a white man from well, he's actually from um, Georgia, I believe, Alabama, mm -hmm. not, but he was in Tennessee at the time and just changed my life because it was an area that was growing and I got to do a lot of work in and then ultimately got recruited to Arnold and Porter, which you were a part of, Meryl, and here I am today. <laughs> Yeah, I was. I I played a little role in that. But don't, <laughs> shh, shh, don't tell anybody. Talk about um, so and so that that um, was an ally. Um, mm -hmm. How how important are allies? Do you think? Oh, it's life changing. I mean, there are two people who I always call out or remember when I think about God placing people in your life to empower you. One is that um, the other is Lauren Lacey, who gave me my first piece of business, like on my own. I remember that she was over food regulatory, I think, in marketing at Hershey at the time. I was a fifth year associate and literally was just looking on websites for Black people right. <laughs> to support. <laughs> and she cold called me and gave me a piece of business and we're still friends to this day. She's still a supporter of me. She's now, her, her career has taken to her multiple places and now she's back at Hershey. But I think about, you know, that they probably didn't even realize at the time how much they could change the trajectory of, you know, a young black female associate's life by just showing people that she could bring in business and could be um, trusted to represent the firm well, but also make clients feel confident in the work product they were getting. So, but yeah, yeah, I'm but so you, grateful to both of them. Uh, absolutely. But you also have to, don't you think in some ways you have to have that 
part of that has to be part of your personality, you know, to, to what extent is it, is it natural, you know, um, and to what extent, and I think this is a good place for you to try to help give some advice to some younger lawyers, you know, how do you get there where you feel comfortable bringing in business, picking up the phone and calling people, not just putting your head down and doing the work? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I think part of it is believing that it's not all on you. Like, I think that's where you mentioned God again, my faith helps in that it's either going to happen or it's not (laughs) at some level. The other part though, is I always think of, um, there's a joke about how, you know, men sometimes find this this easier because they're used to asking people out on dates and being told no, uh. you know, <laughs> women, you know, but just kind of viewing it from a similar day that like a no is not a rejection of your person, right? Like you right. just are shooting out a whole bunch of um, invitations. And even if only one person bites, that's one more than you had before. I think right. that's, you know, that's always been really helpful for me. Um, but I think the other side of it is like remembering what it is that you're selling, like contrary to what people want to believe, nothing about the law and lawyering, lawyering is rocket science or neuroscience. It's not really that complicated. It's to me, it's more about making your clients feel safe. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like more of an emotional a benefit that you're providing to them. If they can trust you to stay calm, to hear them and make them look good. And I think if you can do yourself as selling your brand and communicating with them in that way, it makes the the expanding business and selling and all of that to me a lot easier. And I think sometimes junior associates or forget even junior, I think attorneys period can miss that part of the relationship, right? That it's not just about doing great work. It's how responsive you are and how you talk to them and how you show yourself as being able to act in times of crisis, et cetera, that probably is even more valuable than whether you had a period or a comma after a particular letter in the sentence. Well, and you know, I, I, I was just talking to a, a, a lawyer, a, a black female lawyer who's doing really well. She's young and, you know, she wanted to kind of some advice about career stuff and, and she said, well, you know, Merle, I, I, I think, how do I know that all firms are not the same? You know, it's, it's like, you know, one firm is just like another firm. And I think that, you know, a lot of times people are afraid to make a move um, uh, to find, you know, help advance their career. Obviously you haven't been, and you've, you haven't made many, but the ones that you've made, have been, it seems like really good for you. So can, can you just talk a little bit about, you know, how you were able to, to feel comfortable doing that? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I think that, that I don't know if firms do it on purpose or if it's just the nature of entering into an environment through one way and not knowing how broad the world is, but I think it is very common for junior associates in law firms that have this belief that the firm they're in is the only way that firms are. And so the idea of going to another firm can seem very scary or pointless. And I think that the thing I learned, although I don't even think I realized it until I experienced being at three different firms, is that 
firms are not only different, but practice groups are different and people are different. Right. And so much of it is just finding the right fit in personalities. That's almost more important than finding the area of law that you're working in. I think what was really eye-opening to me about my transition from Covington to Kelly Dry was that there was a huge difference between being in a big office of a big firm versus being in a small office of a small firm. And also the difference between being a general litigation associate and being in more of a regulatory practice. And I realized that for my personality type, I tended to thrive or do better in instances where there were more thinly staffed cases. Mm -hmm. And I think that's not something that's talked about a lot at the law school level when people are choosing environments or when you're trying to figure out what firms to be in. But, you know, I think it matters whether you find yourself liking to be on big high stake matters where there are you know, several attorneys on them? Or do you like things where it's just like you and a partner or you and one other associate and a partner? Um, and I I know for me, that was helpful in kind of training, even mm-hmm. if I didn't know that should have been a part of my, my decision in transitioning. And then, you know, I think as you get more senior, your needs change. And I am just floored by how perfect a fit Arnold and Porter ultimately ended up being for me. Um, and yeah, I so you know I try to let you know tell you and reassure here and there, Mel. But it has been, and they're not paying me to say this. Like <laughs> it is the perfect fit for me at this time in my life. And what I realize is that you know you can get to a point when you have more ownership of your career, which is what happens at the council and partner level. I was a council when I came to Arnold and Porter where cultural fit and platform matter. And I realized, especially in the wake of the George um, Floyd killing and all of that, that it mattered to me to be at a firm where I had access to the management of the firm and Mm -hmm. could really facilitate changes or say things that I had been thinking and um, feel like they'll be supportive in in changing that. And so I think, you know, as I have been, um, as I'm, older, more senior in the legal field, although I still feel like a baby. You are a baby. <laughs> You're just um, ahead of your time. No, that's so kind. But I feel, you know, then I, when I try to stand up from this chair, my knee bothering me, I'm reminded that I'm <laughs> But um, I think being at a, a firm that has a platform um, where they can balance both being lucrative financially with social justice issues mm-hmm. and like mm-hmm. leans a little bit more politically with where I am and isn't as scared of taking stances on racial equity issues became very important. And so I found that I not only wanted to take advantage of the small regulatory practice alignment that I learned at Kelly Drive, but also have a larger platform for cross-selling work while also feeling good about who I'm associated with um, while at a firm. Not that I wouldn't have felt good about Kelly. Don't don't get that the wrong way. But the, the platform for Arnold and Porter is broader in some ways than what I could have done from cross-selling at Kelly Dry. Right, right. And so speaking of all the, the world being upside down and the George Floyd murder and the, the uh, social justice uh, issues that we've been um, dealing with since, um, and the pandemic. Um, I, I want to, I want to kind of transition a little bit, um, because I did notice that you've participated in some, um, some training sessions and written some articles with folks about COVID and how does your practice relate to vaccines? 
So my practice did not relate to vaccines. I think some people in my practice group did a lot of work on that. We are, I don't Porter, I think was involved in three of the four licensing and um, contracting deals around the vaccine. So we're very proud of that. Mm -hmm. But I did do a lot of work related to COVID with respect to um, companies, consumer product companies' responses to the pandemic. So whether it was the increase in access to hand sanitizers and the emergency use authorization that FDA issued with respects to that, or the increase in um, the need to sell masks at the mm -hmm. retail level, which are arguably medical devices. And so there were regulatory considerations to, for companies to consider when they entered into the space. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, it was just, it was kind of um, reassuring and also humbling to realize that like, what I was doing was still helping in some ways, like yeah. um, in access to things that help people to feel safer and to be able to get closer to normal. So I don't know if we'll ever be back to the real normalcy. Right. Um, then, but yeah, I, I appreciated that. And I, I mean, you know, it's just really interesting to say there are some areas that dried up and uh, consumer products work and FDA regulatory work blew up during the COVID-19 um, pandemic and is still very active in the space. And so I'm also grateful to have a job that was, it's weird to say positively impacted, but I, I think um, even more established as being necessary at a time where so many other professions um, may never recover. Right. It's almost kind of an embarrassment of riches, right? Because yeah. there, there, there are a, a lot of us who did you know, really, really well during, mm -hmm. during the pandemic, not because you were being a mercenary or taking advantage, but because you just happened to be in a space where all, you know, your services were heightened, you know, mm -hmm. and, and necessary. And it's almost kind of, it's, it's all for me at some point, it almost felt embarrassing. You're so right. I talked to a lot of my friends and family about, you know, how odd it was as someone I am someone who loves to give God the credit for positive things that are happening right like it's just a part of how I was raised and who I am and I almost felt like I had to be muted or only share it in certain circles because it felt inappropriate or insensitive mm -hmm. to talk about successes in the midst of so much pain and suffering and turmoil uh, it's definitely an interesting period what what one of the other things that I like to talk about on this podcast or BS about other than stereotypes is authenticity. And, you know, I've I've talked to just about everybody that I've talked to and you're like, how did I make the list? It, it, one of the reasons is because I feel like you you have have remained authentically you. And oh. I I really appreciate that. And I mean, do you feel like you've remain authentic? And if so, in what way? And has it always helped or has it ever hurt? Wow. Wow. I'm very touched by that. It's like made me a little emotional because it's, there's not, there's no better compliment, right? Um, and someone to feel like, or see that you are being yourself and you're trying to be yourself. I don't think I felt like I could when I was a junior, junior associate. Um, but I think at Kelly Dry, I, tried it and I realized it worked for me a little bit. I was felt a little bit more secure in any moments where I diverted from that. I just felt stressed, like unhealthy. Like my body was almost allergic to how I was <laughs> acting in some ways. And um, yeah, I don't know if, you know, I always have to be careful because it is different being in a firm environment 
as a counsel or partner than it is as an associate. And I never want to um, negate that or, in, you know, in some ways not give that its, per its appropriate credence. But I've always felt like I could be my authentic self at Arnold and Porter. And at some level, I think the success from the the business generation standpoint has made it even easier. And maybe the fact I've been at three firms, I'm not scared, right? right. <laughs> I am not right. scared of like, right. you know, of, of moving if something happens. So I think that helps a little bit too. When you have a moment where you realize that, um, and then bring God again, like your, your resources are not coming from an institution. They're coming, like for me, it's like if they're coming from above, it either works here or it doesn't, you know, and thank right. God it's working here right now. Um, but I think that, to be honest, I think people can sense when someone is being fake or authentic versus authentic, and they lean more into those where they know where they stand and who they are. And so I would just say from a business perspective, like you will be more successful when people feel like they know what's up, uh, period. And, <laughs> right, right. and so you'll be, I think, less stressed. And at the same time, you'll find that the people who ride with you ride with you hard. Like right. I have, I'd rather have a few clients who give me a lot of business yep. than to have a whole bunch of clients that give me a little bit of business. Because yes. I think at that level, there's more stress involved with the latter. Yes. And, and you mentioned the word fear. And I think that that, that is, you know, you, you, that, that you hit the nail on the head there because fear is, is paralyzing. Mm -hmm. Right. And we, we've all been paralyzed by fear in some way in our lives. But, um, you know, I, I just hope that people will get, you know, get beyond fear in a work environment because work is work. It's a job, mm -hmm. right? There, it's not, it's not life or death, you know, in, in especially in the law for the most part, nobody's going to die. Uh, and, I'm just products, right? Right. No, and, and so the, you know this idea that you know you um, cannot you know it, not be yourself eth ethically or you know uh, uh, fairly uh, be, for fear of losing your job is is a bad bad place to be. Mm -hmm. I agree. It's bad place to be at work. It's a bad place to be mentally and for your life. Like self-care is important. You can make all the money in the world, but if you die from a heart attack or stress or some other things, you, you won't even get the benefit of it, you know, or to spend time with your family, et cetera. So exactly. So what do you do for, for self-care? Oh man. So I am a huge, huge, huge proponent of Orange Theory. It got me through COVID. <laughs> oh, so it was open during COVID? It, well, it had a slight period where it was closed and I felt every day, month of that. And then they, oh, well, it's interesting. So I was very paranoid about being in indoor spaces. And so it turned me into a super morning person because when they reopened, I told myself that if I went, I had to be at the very first class in the morning right. because, there would be because it was people, clean and it was yeah, clean. fewer people <laughs> clean, less air circulating. They would have cleaned it the night before I had right. like, told myself this thing. And the first class was at 6 a.m. So I was getting up at 525, 5, with a little snooze, so 535 right. to get there. But I just felt so much better, you know, whenever... I just exercised and sweated and got that out. And so 
Um, number two to the devotionals and prayer stuff I was doing is the exercise. Like I, and I, what I like about orange, they're not paying for me for this either. What I like about orange theory is that, um, because you have on a monitor, like I am not that athletic. I'm not a runner and they have a power walking uh, uh, option. And Mm -hmm. I would just be in there, you know, with my little, uh, elbows moving fast and my power walking and my heart monitor would be up. So people would know that even though I am moving more slowly than you, (laughs) or I'm not lifting as high of a weight as you, I am pushing myself. And I think there was something about that that made the class more (laughs) manageable for me. Exercise, um, devotional prayer time and, I think I'm doing a lot better about um, protecting time with family and very close friends, like mm-hmm. making sure I have vacation time or take a day off here and there. I was not very good at that pre-COVID. So that is something that I've been doing a lot more of. And I can I can not only feel the difference, but it's odd. It's like, and I'm still getting everything done. So it probably means I could have been doing this all along. <laughs> very right. So um, we've talked about, you know, uh, stereotypes, we've talked about uh, authenticity. Um, Do you have any fun stories you want to share with the audience about uh, being in a firm or, or anything that's happened that you've had to, to handle? Uh, And just to give people an eye, especially younger people, an idea of how to you know, how to, how to make it, how to, or any advice that you want to give? Oh man. Um, hmm. I'm like funny stories will have to be, look, it doesn't matter how old you are or how many jobs you've had or whatever. When you bring your kinfolk and your family to you at your (laughs) office, they're going to want a photo showing that you got a a door with your name. (laughs) I still think of my cousin coming out here. She's like, oh, no, no, no. I got to capture all of this. That is hilarious. (laughs) Yes. Um, That's funny. At the same time, when you get your office, let people know who you are and be your authentic self. There is no one who walks in my office, whether I'm in there or not, and does not know that a black person is in that office. (laughs) Whether it's like the photos I have up in there of um, when President Obama was inaugurated, the newspaper articles and other things. But, you know, your presence matters. I think that, you know, and it's a little different now. I realize there were stereotypes or things I had in my head when I first entered the law firm that made me fear that you had to kind of mute yourself, even down to the like hairstyles I felt like I could have, or, Mm -hmm. you know, what I was, you know, how I would say, or, you know, what I would show. I almost had like two versions of myself, the version at work versus the version with my friends and everything. And I still have two, you know, Arnold and Porter ain't getting all of Rocky. I don't think any job should get all of you in some respect. It's called code switching, right? Yeah, code switching, exactly. But I think that um, now I, I feel so much comfort in making sure my pride in being Black and belief in our people and having my culture come to who I am at work Mm-hmm. especially because of the response that associates have about it. I think for me, one of the most um, beautiful or humbling experiences I had was when associates who were leaving to go to in-house jobs and other things would tell me how meaningful certain things were that I had said or done that was just me being myself and letting them know that it was okay for them to be themselves. Like I remember being on a call 
earlier this year on the same day that the the flirt the verdict came out mm-hmm. um with uh now i'm blanking on his name george floyd george the police floyd. officer who murdered him right and we were in the middle of a phone call with it was me and a staff attorney and a junior associate and i stopped the call it was like no i have to just say they just found him guilty like in the middle of the call i just couldn't act like that wasn't happening on my news screen while we were on the call with the client and the client responded favorably it was a white woman um who's amazing by the way but the associate and um, staff attorney called me afterward and said like how much it meant to them that i was able to acknowledge that moment on a call with a client and those types of things i think are just a reminder that like when you there are respectful ways for you to maintain your integrity as a black attorney um, that will also help to create the space that we deserve to have in those environments and help to make the people coming after you feel more comfortable being themselves. And so I guess I'll show, share those two anecdotes. Um, this is our time. So hopefully we can we can push the needle with respect to the number of us and how we feel valued or um, respected and appreciated in the law firm environment. Well, and I, you just gave me goosebumps. Thank you so much, oh, wow, Rikia. Um, and I, I agree a hundred percent. And you know, if we can, if you can help one per, my my philosophy is if I can help one person, um, then you know that makes what I do and and, and you know makes it worth it. Uh, it doesn't have to be tons of people. If you can help one person who then in turn helps another person, then life is kind of worth it. Well, hey, you've already done that for me and about set, at least seven to 12 other people. <laughs> so you have achieved, achieved your goal. Your, your life is beyond worth it at this point. Uh, well, thank you so much. And you know what? I know you have a lot to do and I'm going to, I'm not going to take up any more time uh, from your day, but I just want to say thank you, uh, Rakia, for being here to BS with me today. Um, And I hope you had a good time. Oh, I had a wonderful time. And I'm still so just humbled and honored that you selected me to be a part of this. This has been fun. I'm like, "Mm -hmm." I mean, I need a little bit of time to recover. So I have new content. (laughs) I would love to do this again another time. And I look forward to continuing to hear other um, people speak on your series. Well, I'll definitely have you back. And thanks again. And, And thanks to everyone for listening. And until the next episode, remember that everybody is different and different is good. Hit it. That's what I'm talking about. Wait. Okay now, from the beginning. We hope you enjoyed the stories shared in today's episode of BS, Beyond Stereotypes. Join us next time when another authentic personality unleashes their uniqueness on the world.